Hello and welcome to the Luke Miller Podcast. I'm glad that you're able to join me today. On this week's episode, we're going to be taking a look at the history and the archaeology of post-exilic Israel. We're going to be taking a look at the events that led up to Israel's return to Jerusalem, and we're going to see what actions they took that led to the message of Malachi being the last prophet that God sent. There's a lot of information that can lead us to have a better understanding of Malachi and a better context of everything that was going on in the world at that time. I'm excited for today. Grab your Bible, turn to Malachi, and let's dive in. Happy 4th of July to everyone, even though it's slightly late on this, but hopefully everyone had a great weekend. Uh, It has been a journey for us as we've gone through Malachi. And, And really the goal of this is to say, how do we have a better understanding of the biblical context that's happening? You've heard me talk a lot about this term, the Seitzenleben, understanding the original context in which everything happened. And as we discovered last week, as we looked at covenants, a lot of that has to do with the fact that there is context to the context of Malachi, understanding that God gave his covenants to the, made covenants with the people of Israel and people of Israel broke their side of the bargain, but God does not leave them. And so we see how that leads to where Israel is right now. Uh, and on a week where it's a holiday, uh, I wanted to take a bit of a uh, a moment and and take a look at at post-exilic Israel. So we have a better understanding of this broader picture of, of everything that's happening. We've taken a, a look at the broader picture of the minor prophets as a whole and how Malachi fits into that. But we haven't really looked at at a full history of, of what led to post-exile life. We know and we talked about uh, the declaration of Cyrus, uh, who was the emperor of Persia, who let the people of Israel go back to Jerusalem. But we don't have a full understanding of of what actually led up to that. And, and that's why I wanted us to discover, because throughout this, you can see that there is God's sovereignty in everything. As mentioned before, one of the things that we often see is that, or as I like to refer to it, is Israel spending time in exile was really like the timeout chair, although a very long timeout. Uh, it was God's way of saying, you know what? I have had it. I'm not done with you, but you have to get punished so you can learn your lesson. And he moved them away from their home. The temple was destroyed and, and they had some time to think about it while in captivity in, in Babylon. I want you to understand, too, that, that there is a certain mentality that, that was in the ancient Near East at that time, that when two militaries fought against each other, it wasn't really the militaries that were fighting, it was the gods of those nations. And so you had the Babylonian Empire and their whole pantheon of gods versus Israel and the monotheistic Israel and Yahweh, uh, the one true God. Uh, and that's kind of a lot of what the mentality in the ancient Near East was. And and the temples that were built throughout the ancient Near East uh, were really thought of as where those gods lived. And so you have to understand that there is a bit of this mentality when we hear of of the God uh, of Yahweh and the God of, of Israel in the temple being destroyed, this was a crushing blow for Israel. As they were getting carried off into captivity, to make matters worse, they watched the temple destroyed 
and and that's where God lived. And so they had a lot of time to think about this in exile. And then we see the prophets coming in of Daniel in the Babylonian Empire. Uh, and, and we see that story start to play out where, where now there's this message that God is not just in a building, a very good metaphor for, for church today. But God is not in just a building in the temple. God in his covenant is, is everywhere and is with them. So the fall of the Babylonian Empire uh, is a very interesting one because um, unlike Egypt, which seemed to have a perpetual place uh, where it was a stronghold in the ancient Near East, in the area of greater Mesopotamia, where we know as Lebanon and Syria and modern-day Iraq and Iran, there was constantly the changing of the guard as to, to who was in charge. Uh, it wasn't uh, lengthy reigns where you were kind of the commander of, of the whole region. You didn't have set-aside nations. In fact, as we looked at covenants last week, uh, usually what happened was a uh, a nation would come in, a strong nation, and would start to go to all the tiny little nations and make treaties with them where they said, hey, we'll protect you, but you have to send your fighting men to us. We see that the Babylonians did this with the Edomites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and uh, in in many ways, uh, Israelites, even though they came in forcefully, they took all the fighting men, uh, especially to Babylon. And, and, and what we see in, in this is the Babylonian Empire did not really last long. Uh, in fact, the Babylonian Empire reached kind of its pinnacle under the leadership of one of the kings that we know, which is Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar was reigning from 605 to 562 BC. We have this from Babylonian historical records. And so that's very easy to date. But his death in many ways, led to the beginning of the end of, of Babylon. Israel is still there. And after several short-lived reigns, uh, we see uh, that one of them, uh, one of the, the kings who had seized the throne in 556, and he reigned there until the fall of Babylon in 539. And in 539, the Persians took the city. Uh, and, and little is known about the king, uh, Nabonius, Nabonides, I should say, sorry. Uh, and uh, there's not much that we know of him. Um, the Babylonian chronicles and historical documents that we have uh, assert that uh, during the second half of his reign, he took up residence in the city of Tima, a site in Arabia or uh, modern day Iraq uh, and Persia, and because it was an important trade route. And one of the things that we have from archaeological data is whenever we see trade hubs, we can see just how large that that country was and, and how large its influences were. And, and in that city, uh, from archaeological digs, we can see that there is artifacts and we see uh, evidence coming up all the way from Egypt. Uh, so we know just how far the Babylonian Empire was reaching and how much influence was there, uh, as well as Egypt's. Uh, but because of the king's ab absence from the Babylon and itself, we see that 
um, there was a crown prince that ran the state of affairs. Uh, but the New Year's festival could not be celebrated without the king. And this was just part of, of their society. And in the final days before the conquest of Babylon, the king returned to his land to try and defend it and ordered that cult statues of all various deities be taken to Babylon to assist in the defense. You see what's happening uh, here is a very good picture as to the insight of the culture in which Bab the Israelites were le- uh, living. And, and I say this because we can say very much the same thing about where we are right now. Uh, as a society, as a Western society, it, it's very easy to see what we would uh, – look at as as different deities, different idols that people have put in their lives popping up around uh, the Western culture. Uh, and and as a church, we're living in a place where we believe what we believe, yet yet there is always this constant pressure and constant influence. And and this is in many ways kind of, I feel like, a, a test. The prophets are, are there. Uh, in fact, the book of Daniel contains the report of the final days of the Babylonian Empire. Uh, and, and we see what's happening here. First, we learn that the final king of Babylon is Belshazzar, and that he, he threw a very large party for a thousand and nobles. We read this in Daniel chapter 5 verse 1. And while the festivities were in in full swing, a mystical human hand appeared writing an obscure text on the wall, and the king panicked and called all of his sages to interpret the text. It's that point in the story that Daniel stepped forward to interpret the text to mean that the kingdom would come to an end and it would uh, and would be taken by the Persians. Uh, and which will the Persians are the ones who would be letting Israel return to Israel. So you can see where this is falling into our storyline. And some historians regard the reference to Belshazzar uh, as, a, as a historical plunder since uh, Nabonidus uh, is known to be the last Chaldean king. And it's a, uh, it is reasoned that the book of Daniel was written nearly 400 years after the fall of Babylon, and, and the biblical author did not know who the king was, uh, so made up a name. That's kind of one of the, the theories that is out there. However, if we take a closer look at it, we see that the Babylonian Chronicles report that the crown prince that actually ruled in Babylon was uh, probably Belshazzar, uh, and while Nabonius was in Arabia, of the larger region. And and this problem is clarified by a tablet that has been found by archaeologists, where it talks and it gives a little more detail uh, about this. So what we actually see is Belshazzar was the crown prince who was the de facto king of Babylon in absence of his father. Uh, and what we see is that uh, that we get a little more detail, and now archaeology is able to actually clarify the fact that uh, Nabonidus was the larger king of the region, his son Belshazzar was the regional king or the crown prince. I point this out, and you may be wondering, what does this all have to do with with Malachi? What does this all have to do with the Bible? This is a glimpse into how we can use archaeology to show not only the existence of Israel, but we're able to show that it is the events surrounding biblical events are are actually there, and the people are real. Uh, and, And it's easy to say, well, 
Daniel made up this name. Daniel was written at this time, and it was just guessing. What we see here is actually clarity from archaeology to tell us who was who in our story. So, so what we see here is is not only the book of uh, does the book of Daniel know that Belshazzar was the ruler, but it also contains a clue concerning his status. And when Belshazzar summoned the wise men, he declared, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. And and he will be made the third ruler of the kingdom. As Daniel chapter five, verse seven says, we see that it now has a line to the king. Nabonidus, then Belshazzar, and then whoever interprets this, which in fact was Daniel. Uh, and so you can start to see how picture has taken place. In and and then the Persians seized Babylon that very night. Uh, on top of that, Belshazzar was slain in Daniel chapter five thirty and thirty one. And a month later, Cyrus the emperor himself arrived with great fanfare into Babylon, and he was met with residents as uh, waving branches. Uh, and and we have record of that virtually a, a Palm Sunday uh, in many ways, where we see how a king and how a conqueror is welcomed into a city that it that has been under siege. And and so out of this we see that uh exile officially ended in 539 BC. And and a decade later the benevolent emperor died. Uh his tomb his stone t- chamber uh are perched on a stepped pyramid like structure in modern day Iran. So that leads us to this time period of where Malachi is and, and what that actually looks like in our time. And joy must have gripped the thousands of returnees as they made that journey back to Jerusalem around 538 or 537 BC. And Zerubbabel, the great grandson of Jehoiakim, led that group back of over 60,000. And he was appointed governor uh, under his leadership uh, while the temple was rebuilt. We know this from Ezra chapter 2, verse 4. And and the sight of demolished Jerusalem must have been pretty distressing as they arrived. Their first task was to rebuild the altar, to make offerings, and to celebrate Sukkot, which is the Feast of Booths, a biblical holiday. And as in the days of Solomon, uh, Phoenician carpenters and masons were hired with the help of the construction. We also know that from Ezra chapter 3. And some non-Jewish neighbors, possibly the Samaritans, uh, as we know, they were kind of a bit of a thorn in in the Israelite side, caused legal problems for the building efforts, and the work on the temple was stalled until the emperor Darius I came along. And Darius ordered a search of the archives to check the claim that Cyrus had originally granted permission to reconstruct the temple. And a copy was found, and we know this from Persian records, that between 520 and 515, the temple was completed, as per Ezra chapter 6 as well. But Darius, uh, during this time, built this magnificent city in uh, Persia to be its capital, which includes an inscription that describes all of this. And... And so, again, we see that not only did uh, are we able to use some archaeology to help construct a historical record of what happened and what led to Israel's return, we're also able to see that 
kings of uh, the kings of Persia, the kings of Babylon also used historical documents to help prove history and help prove events that happened. Darius I, king of Persia, used historical documents to prove that Cyrus had, in fact, granted Israel the right to build their temple. And, and so it happened. Uh, biblical history of the Old Testament period ends really in in the book of Nehemiah in many ways, uh, where we find Malachi. Nehemiah undertook the rebuilding of the walls of the city, which till the, to this day, uh, or till that day, had not been rebuilt. Yet we see remnant of it in modern day. It, it left the city vulnerable, and with permission of the Persian emperor Artaxerxes the first. Um, to whom Nehemiah was the official cupbearer, Nehemiah left the city of Susa and traveled to Jerusalem. And we know that this is around in 444. And despite the objections of, of nearby opponents of the Jews and the Samaritans and all their nearby neighbors, Nehemiah completed the task of supervising the reconstruction. Most archaeologists believe that the walls were built on the foundations of the earlier city, which was traditionally what happened uh, when rebuilding took place in the ancient Near East. It was built on the ruins of previous. Uh, And this is also a little insight. What makes it difficult for uh, a lot of archaeologists and when you're doing this is you have to work so slowly because what would have been a, a wall in... In one time period, when the conquerors came in, it would have turned to rubble, and that turns into the flooring of the next time period. So you have to be very meticulous in in trying to figure out what time period uh, certain things belong to and what time period you're, you're excavating because there can be a lot of uh, – I wouldn't say controversy, a lot of discussion around the fact because archaeologists – Uh, or because of the ancient Near Eastern building tradition of you build on what with what materials you have and then start building more and adding on onto it. Uh, And so, so most archaeologists believe the walls were built on the earlier foundation of the city and the city would have been rather small, uh, probably limited to, to uh, the Jerusalem of, of David's day and that size. Uh, and most people will also say that they believe that the walls would have encompassed all of old Jerusalem as we know it prior to its destruction in 586. Nehemiah's Jerusalem then was was pretty large, but sparsely populated. <laughs> um, and, and after a brief visit to Babylon in 432, which we know as record recorded in the Persian historical documents and as in uh, what we can get from Nehemiah, we see their time period of seven years of where Malachi is taking place. And, and so the Old Testament period draws to a close with the Persians controlling this massive empire that went from modern-day India to Ethiopia to northern Arabia to modern-day Turkey, and and so quite the empire. And, and through that, we see that period of 400 years. And, and one of these days, we'll talk about what actually happened historically during those 400 years, because I think it's uh, good for us to know. 
as, as we leave Malachi and we head into the Gospels. But but I want you to understand this is the setting for everything that is happening historically that led to Malachi. Um, and and there's a reason why uh, I took a I took a break over the the holiday weekend and didn't preach on Malachi, but I thought this would be a good way for us to a good topic for us to understand the greater historical context. Uh, I hope you see this that as we as we get a greater picture of what led to exile, what led to the the return of the Israelites, we can see that this isn't just a biblical document. Right? The biblical document explains what happened, but we have all this extra biblical data that says, yes, these events did come true. This is not a fairy tale that was happening. And as I finish up here, I think it's important for us to understand this at the throughout all of it that this is a form of apologetic. This is a way of saying, you know what, if we believe and start to see that the the stories that we are reading in the Bible are true historical stories, then now the next step is for us to believe and for those who don't believe right now to start to look at the God behind those stories. Because we know the events happened. We see the sovereignty of God. Uh, and, and now we can start to see God behind all the stories and orchestrating it. One of the things that I love the most about this is is Daniel himself and the records of Daniel interpreting what was written on the wall. And immediately that night, the Persians invaded. Uh, and we see how how everything from the Bible can be corroborated with, with extra biblical texts from the Babylonian Empire and from the Persian Empire. Uh, something that's really great. Uh, so I'm going to leave it that, at that today. I hope you enjoy a bit of this history and archaeological lesson. There's a whole lot more there, but, but I should probably wrap it up. Uh, as I know sometimes it can feel like it's, it's drinking through a fire hose, a uh, uh, historically, but but I, I love this, and I love how we can use uh, writings from all the other nations to help show that the writings that we already believe to be true are true. So it can help others. It can help us understand a better setting for what's going on in Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, and it'll help us give a better context for what that means to us today. Because I know that we can sometimes feel like we are living in that Babylonian empire in exile where there are all sorts of idols bombarding us. Uh, And yet God is saying, I am your one true God. Follow me. I have not left you. I am here for you. So hopefully you can take that as a bit of an encouragement as you go about this week. Take care. Have a great week. And next week we're continuing on in our series uh, in Malachi and we're diving into chapter three. So I'm excited to do that. Take care. Have a great week. I'll talk to you next week. Thank you for joining us today on the Luke Miller Podcast. If you've got questions or want to know more about Sunrise Digital Ministries, you can find everything at www.sunrise.church or wherever you find your podcasts on Apple, on Google, or on Amazon. If you are interested or wanting to know more about Jesus or have questions about who God is and his will in your life, we'd love to be able to answer them. And you can submit your questions at www.sunrise.church. Thanks again for joining us. We'll talk to you next week.